and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're looking at the declaration by Vladimir Putin that he might move Russian nuclear weapons into Belarus. We're going to talk about the security implications of this, how it fits into Russia's wider plans, and how concerned everyone should be. We'll also be diving this week into the internal dynamics of Belarus. It's been three years since Belarus's presidential election, an election Alexander Lukashenko was widely seen to have lost, sparking widespread pro-democracy protests. Since then, however, he's crushed the opposition in Belarus, kidnapped journalists, been drawn into Russia's invasion against Ukraine. So we're going to talk about how the sentiment in the country, through polling data which we've commissioned at Chatham House, suggests how the West should engage with what has been called Europe's last dictatorship. We've got a terrific group today to discuss all this. I have first my Russia and Eurasia program colleagues who are out in full force, Keir Giles as a senior consulting fellow with us and the author of a recent Chatham House report on Russia's nuclear doctrine. Welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. Hello. Great to have you here. Joining us down the line from Warsaw is Rigor Astapenia, the director of our Belarus initiative within the Russia-Eurasia program. Welcome as well. Thank you, Bronwyn. Great to have you as well. And finally, joining us from Paris is a returning voice to the show, journalist Samantha de Benden. Welcome back to the podcast, Sam. Good morning. Hello. Bonjour, as they say. They do. Good to have you with us. Well, let's start first with this announcement by Russia that it might be moving nuclear weapons into Belarus. Kier, could I start with you? What is the status of this? Well, it's not a new announcement. This is something that we saw in uh, June of last year when President Putin first said that he would be moving Russian nuclear weapons into Belarus in two different forms. First of all, the uh, the missiles, the Iskander-M missiles, dual capable. And secondly, uh, equipping Belarusian aircraft, Sukhoi-25's ground attack aircraft to deliver nuclear missiles. So what we heard uh, earlier this year in 2023 was an update on those plans. It was President Putin saying that these plans were progressing, the infrastructure was being put in place for uh, receiving these nuclear missiles, nuclear capable missiles, and also uh, saying that the training of the pilots for delivering them from these ground attack aircraft was, was currently underway. So they're well established plans and this was really just a, a progress report that we heard from President Putin. Okay, so a progress report, lots of busyness there, lots of description of activity. But are you expecting this actually to happen? Well, certainly the Belarusian side, the Belarusian military, does seem to be expecting this to happen. Now, what it actually means in terms of new capability is not very much. This does seem to be primarily a, a posturing for political purposes. There's a, a widespread skepticism about the choice of aircraft, for example, that's been uh, made for delivering these free-fall gravity nuclear bombs that uh, that Russia is proposing to actually send to, to Belarus uh, because the Sukhoi-25s, they're old, they're low, they're slow, they're not suitable for um, for this particular task. And that's why it's seen really as part of the political theater that goes around this. President Putin wants to present this as not a new initiative by Russia, but something that they're doing simply in response to what uh, other countries do, particularly the United States with its nuclear sharing agreements across Europe, which have a similar pattern for weapons being provided for aircraft of other nations to deliver. 
And even the missiles that are going in don't significantly extend Russia's reach into Europe because, of course, it is possible for Russia to base missiles in the Kaliningrad exclave. So it's far more a political than military set of consequences that we're looking at. Is that your perception, looking at what people are saying in Belarus? I think we can touch both Lukashenko's motivations and the attitudes within Belarusian society. And these two things are different. Lukashenko's desire for nuclear weapons stems from his desire to increase his international standard and uh, solidify his regime's stability. Moreover, his long-term objective is to gain control over these weapons, although it remains absolutely unclear how, how he plans to accomplish this. As for societal attitudes, polls commissioned by the Belarus Initiative show a public consensus that Russian nuclear weapons are not needed on Belarusian territory. The reasons for this vary. Some individuals are opposed to the Kremlin, so they clearly do not need any nuclear weapons from Russia, while others just do not see purpose in acquiring weapons that Belarus has no intention to use and, of course, do not want to make Belarus a target because of placement of these weapons. You put it very clearly, but I'm struck in the way you're uh, discussing it as well, as if this is definitely going to happen. Yet there is quite a bit of discussion about whether or not the storage facilities might remain empty, whether this is a bargaining chip. Do you take it as a, a done deal? I think that, well, according to the Putin statements, the infrastructure will be ready in two months. Uh, I think, well, it's not going to happen in, in two months, but I guess that it is possible to construct a necessary infrastructure and train those military personnel to operate these weapons. But frankly speaking, I do not see much benefit for Russia to train those military personnel and give them access to operate this weaponry. Russian military officials probably understand that Lukashenko's intentions are pretty the same way I do understand them, that he wants to obtain these weapons for himself. So I just do not see that it is in Russia's interest to keep those military personnel close to these uh, Russian weapons, and maybe he's just a bluff and it's not going to happen. It's a really interesting point, because of course, what Russia is saying is that Russia will keep control of these weapons and Belarus can just support uh, the delivery. Sam, what is your view of whether this is positioning, if you like? Well, I see that it's mainly as positioning. Um, of course, it's not impossible that, that, that weapons will actually be put into Belarus. But the, you know, um, part of Russia's nuclear deterrence is is actually um, the words that they use. It's the rhetoric that comes from Moscow. They want to frighten the West into thinking that if we continue to support Ukraine, that uh, at one point some kind of nuclear device will be used in Ukraine. And and so it's it's all part of the theater. And it's it, that's that's the biggest threat. The biggest threat from these these nukes is not that they will be used; is that their threat of their use will actually decrease Western support for Ukraine. So anything is possible in this war, but you know I think that we should again bear in mind that this, this is part of the theatre. As for, for, for Lukashenko's intentions, I I, I agree with Rihor. You know he he, he does. Have, have a desire to increase the standing on the international scene, but where I'm, I'm, uh, I see a lot of contradiction in his behaviour is that um, just before the latest announcement in March that, that Putin was going to, you know, again 
um, deliver nuclear weapons to Belarus, that he was upgrading the, the storage facilities. A few days before that, Lukashenko was in China and he met with Xi Jinping. And everybody knows now China's at least openly stated attitude towards nuclear weapons is that they are not to be used under any circumstances. And China has been very firm about that in every single meeting that has happened taking place between Xi and Putin. Xi has reiterated his his opposition to the use uh, of nuclear weapons and also irresponsible nuclear rhetoric. So it's quite interesting that a few days after Lukashenko went to Beijing, um, this announcement came out. And um, my the question I have, that I don't know whether anyone has an answer to that, is how this will have played out between the, the, the Belarus-Chinese relationship, which is an important one to Belarus. I'm going to come back to some points about Lukashenko's motivations in a moment. But Kier, what do you make about that point about Beijing and how Belarus is positioning itself there? Well, first of all, on Sam's other points, that's absolutely right. This is a key part of Russia's campaign of nuclear intimidation, which has brought it enormous success in constraining the West's responses to the Ukraine war. And that's actually the subject of a a Chatham House report published in March called simply Russia's nuclear intimidation, looking at just how effective these tactics have been in trying to um, make sure that Ukraine doesn't get that war-winning support that it needs. And we're seeing the consequences now with the delay in this anticipated Ukrainian offensive to try to liberate the occupied territories. But I think that's also the key to um, the the answer to your question there about the context in which this uh, this most recent set of announcements was made. First of all, I think it's worth thinking about how precisely Putin delivered this information. It's been spun into a new set of threats, a new set of, of nuclear rhetoric, but that wasn't exactly how it was presented. It really was just a kind of uh, fairly bland, uh, incidental comment on on the progress of plans that were already underway. And I suspect Russia was slightly surprised that it got picked up on in the West in the way that it did. However, there's also the point that uh, the trajectory of Russia's volume and intensity of nuclear threats has been very marked over the period of the the, the full-scale war on Ukraine. It was very intense towards the beginning. It tailed off towards the second half of 2022, partly, we think, as a result of that pressure from China that uh, that Sam referred to, China making it very clear that it did not welcome this irresponsible, loose talk about use of nuclear weapons. But after that, we saw a move to slightly more creative and more, I hesitate to say subtle, but at least not quite so obvious means of threatening the West. We saw uh, Russia mentioning, for example, Ukrainian plans for dirty bombs. We saw these these plans to uh, potentially deliver nuclear weapons to Belarus, although still under Russian control. It's uh, the pattern is of finding other ways of keeping the nuclear pressure on without necessarily crossing that line that China has said that, uh, no, you cannot actually go making these loose threats because it's highly destabilizing. As you said, a kind of creativity. Record, do you think that this is a sign of Russia's weakness in the Ukraine fight? Some people might say, for example, look, Russia may not have the resources for a long, long drawn out battle in Ukraine, but it has every incentive, therefore, to escalate things uh, with all these threats up to the edge of actually using these weapons. Yes, sure. I think that Kira is absolutely right about saying that it's uh, part of the intimidation and saying that, well, uh, we have something uh, against you and we can use that. But basically, we see what, from what I see in case of Belarus, it's just a bluff. 
And, and on Lukashenko's motives, obviously he may want, he may dream of having control of these weapons in the end. Belarus did have nuclear weapons up to 1994 when it signed the Budapest Memorandum with Ukraine and Kazakhstan and gave up its weapons. Do you think he's, is he realistic in any sense that Russia would give control of these weapons? Well, actually, Belarus even didn't have control before uh, it was transferred to Russia again. I mean, there are Russian nuclear weapons. Yes. Yes, that was fair point. In Absolutely Belarus. fair point. Yeah. So, and uh, actually, and he was very angry about that. And he mentioned that during his long reign that, well, it was bad that Belarus sent nuclear weapon away and that he didn't have control over it. So I think that, well, he's probably not very realistic about having control over these weapons. But at the same time, he thinks that it's a clear way to become stronger in the international arena and it's a contradictory interest he has at the moment that on the one hand he can solidify his regime by having these nuclear weapons but at the same time it will he might become even more dangerous and recidivism uh, uh, just a worse person than before but maybe you know building a North Korea is the way he would like to choose Sam, how do you think Europe and NATO should respond? I'm thinking of one headline recently saying, NATO, don't take the bait on this. I think that, I mean, NATO and Europe have responded by a lot of rhetoric and a lot of, you know, oh, you know, one mustn't encourage nuclear proliferation after the, the, the 27th of March um, you know, semi-announcement by Putin about upgrading Belarus's um, storage facilities. You know, the, for, the German and French foreign ministries issued condemnations and threatened further sanctions if nukes were actually um, sent to Belarus. And um, Joseph Borrell as well said that you know that this was totally unacceptable and there would be sanctions. But it's, the West has responded by by caving in to a lot of the nuclear threat from Russia, whether it's to, to position any kind of weapons in Belarus or whether it's the threats that come from the Kremlin. Because the reason we are not, well, the West is not arming Ukraine to really defend itself and reconquer its territories is because... Russia's nuclear deterrence is actually working. The rhetoric is working. I, I, I live in France, and for the last year and three months, I, I've been on a, on a daily television show about the war in Ukraine. The reason that this daily television show exists is because the French public watch it, and the ratings are going through the roof. And why are people watching it? Because they are scared of the nuclear threat. The nuclear threat is particularly uh, live for for the French public. It's particularly live for the French public. Uh, you have French generals talking every single day, practically on television, about this threat. Now, some of them are, of course, playing it down, but it is it is used by anyone who is against arming Ukraine, and a lot of these are either useful idiots or. One can imagine well-placed people with with directors from the Kremlin to to play up this threat and 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 to play up the idea that we are not going to die for Ukraine. So you, you, Europe has responded with sanctions. Europe has responded with words, but in my humble opinion, it is still insufficient. That it's the whole idea that you, uh, either you help Ukraine or you don't, and this has been the West's 
general attitude towards Ukraine since the very beginning, since independence. I used to work at NATO headquarters and I was what's called the NATO Ukraine political officer. And there was always this sense that, oh my God, let's hope Ukraine doesn't make a formal application to join NATO because if we if that happens, Russia will get angry. And and NATO has always had this this very ambivalent attitude towards Ukraine. And I think that is part of the problem of what happened today. In 2008, there was this this half-baked declaration that Ukraine would one day potentially join NATO, but not now. So it's it's a question of, 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 to use a very sort of blunt analogy, you you cannot be half pregnant. You cannot be half part of NATO. And what is happening with Ukraine today is that it's being given enough weapons to, 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 stop it being invaded further by Russia, but still not being given enough to actually put Russia back and really deter Russia from doing the same thing ever again to any of its other neighbours. And that has been the problem right. from the very be, you beginning. You can be half, equi- half equipped with weapons then, and you possibly can be half you equipped. You can be half equipped with weapons. You can possibly can be half equipped with nuclear weapons, which is what we've been talking about in the case of Belarus. We're going to have to watch this as this, this develops this summer. Let's turn to our second aspect of this, which is the situation within Belarus. And Rico, I wonder if you could take us into this. Chatham House regularly runs polls on the public sentiment within Belarus. What can you tell us about what they say now? Well, let's try to describe, explain Belarus society just in a minute. And roughly speaking, it is currently divided into three parts. The first third is full of Koshanka. The second is for democratic changes. And the third part is a politicized part, or so to speak, neutral. And what happened during the 2020 presidential election is that this third part became politicized and said that change is better than Lukashenko. But it's been three years since then, and this third part has become depoliticized again. And uh, given that the regime has blocked independent media inside the country, there are almost... 2,000 political prisoners in jail, civil society, political organizations have been dismantled. So we see that all these events have solidified the democratic threat that Lukashenko must go. But on the other hand, this neutral part has become disconnected from independent media. It didn't, uh, this part of the society do not see politics at all in Belarus. And that is why they have returned to their debilitized status quo. So in essence, when it comes to the legitimacy of Lukashenko's rule, it is currently incomplete. However, on the other hand, maybe he doesn't need complete legitimacy to maintain his grip on power. Lukashenko has some supporters. Another third of the society has accepted the status quo. And by keeping the country in a state of repression, isolation, media blackout, without any political competitions, Russians in, Westerners out. So the regime can exist with the current incomplete decree of of legitimacy. Thank you. You put it very, very clearly indeed. Kia, what do you make of that and of the relationship that Lukashenko has with Putin? Well, as always with these things, there is a long backstory and we need to, we need to bear in mind the context and everything that's gone before to understand this, this current uh, track that uh, Lukashenko is on. 
On the one hand, there has been Belarus's attempt to resist Russia's moves to try to incorporate its security into their own uh, into their own defense arrangements. Now, notionally, of course, these two countries are a union state, but that's always been very much more on paper than in practice, except where Russia forces Belarus to actually uh, accept the, uh, the extending of Russia's defense umbrella over it. Now, that's something against which um, Lukashenko has long and successfully pushed back, but of course was in a much weaker position to do so after the August 2020 elections, when he was so reliant on Russian support. However, we do still see traces of that in Belarusian behavior, Belarusian behavior because there is a, a very plausible case to be made that Belarus was in fact supposed to join in with the assault on Ukraine in February 2022. But in fact, the Belarusian armed forces, which have always been ambivalent towards their relationship with Russia, refused to do so. There's a spectrum of opinion, not just within Belarusian society, but also within government agencies, like uh, the ministries, like the armed forces, some very much in favor of closer ties with Russia and actually acting out those ties from day to day. Uh, that, for example, the KGB, the, uh, the airborne assault forces of the armed forces, and others which are far more inclined to see Belarus as a sovereign nation, which actually has a right to a relationship with the West. And that includes, for example, uh, traditionally the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and other parts of the armed forces that were well aware that Russia was in fact the main threat to Belarus. And we see this dynamic playing out in, in some of the ambivalent responses that we've seen, not just to this latest announcement, but also whenever there's a tension between Russia's state aims and Belarusian independence and sovereignty. Because Belarus, as an ally of Russia, in fact, Russia's only ally in the world, certainly isn't going to go into war against Russia, but they're also not that keen on going to war for Russia either, because they know that would be absolutely disastrous for their own country. Sam, how are European nations approaching Belarus and these flickers of, of uh, assertion of uh, its right to independence and, and sovereignty that Kia was just describing, which surfaced from the relationship with Russia. I really don't think we can talk about a, a homogenous approach to Belarus from European nations. I mean, if we look at a country like Poland, which is on Belarus's border, and has always been very much aware of, of the existence of Belarus and its uh, existence as an independent state, has also been aware of the border problems between the EU and Belarus, as as we saw in in, in late uh, twenty twenty, when uh, Lukashenko basically shipped in migrants from the Middle East and sort of threw them on the Belarus Polish border to create a, a fake migrant crisis. So, so Poland is is and and the Eastern European. Uh, member states, I would put in one category. But if you go to Western Europe, if you go to, if you go to France, if you go to to a certain extent Germany or, or further south, I mean, until February 2022, particularly in France, people had no idea what Belarus really was. Is it part of Russia? Is it Belarusia? Is it White Russia? What 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 is this country? Who is this Lukashenko guy? Belarus um, has a started to exist in West European consciences since the war in Ukraine started, since Lukashenko suddenly started to appear on television screens. I mean, there, there was a brief flicker in August 2020, but most people didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. The the, the emergence of Belarus as a, a, a co-belligerent with Russia in the war in Ukraine is, is something new. And I would even go so far as to say that until 
February 2022, a lot of people had a very vague idea of where Ukraine was, but it was a, it was a sort of Russia, Russia sort of, you know, um, minus or, you know, sort of, it, it, it was the, the general public's awareness of even Eastern Europe is very, very low in Western Europe. So Belarus is not on people's radar. It is um, becoming more so because of this nuclear threat. And, and in a way, you know, if, if, if one could think of, as a sort of publicist, you know, this has been a fantastic publicity stunt for, for Lukashenko because people actually know he exists now. They do. Uh, that's uh, indisputable. And uh, obviously, for the grimmest reasons, people do emphatically know where Ukraine is now. We are going to have to leave this discussion uh, for the moment but not these topics which we'll continue to return to right through what is a very unpredictable and tense summer. So a big thank you to all my guests, Kia Giles, Rico Astapena, and Samantha Debenden. Do follow them all on Twitter. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe to us. Please do leave us a review. And to read more from our experts or find out about our events, we've got lots of them coming up, or to become a member, and we'd really love to have you. Don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of all our programs and the many, many things done by the Russia and Eurasia program. Next week, we're going to be looking at the aftermath of Turkey's presidential election and what it means for Turkey's place in the world. Goodbye. Thank you for listening.